our podcast episode. Jennifer is an international arbitration and dispute resolution lawyer who is also currently a partner at Sydney Austin. Jennifer represents a client in both investor state and commercial arbitrations with expertise spanning across multiple jurisdictions and arbitration rules, including ICSID, UNCITRAL, HKIAC, SIAC, ICC, and LCIA, seated across Singapore, New York, and Hong Kong. Jennifer has been named to be one of the best arbitration lawyers in her generation. She has been recognized and honored by Who's Who Legal as a Thought Leader Global Elite 2023 Arbitration Future Leader, which is one of the highest accolades given by the publication to outstanding lawyers under the age of 40. She has also been recognized by the Legal 500 Arbitration Power List, as well as the Expert Guides Rising Star List. Welcome Jennifer, welcome to today's episode. Thank you so much, Daphne. Maybe we can kickstart to understand a little bit more about your background. What got you interested or jumped into the field of international arbitration? Well, around the time that I was applying to university, Mm -hmm. um, I was actually quite interested in public international law. At the time, uh, it was about 2008, and Singapore and Malaysia were in the Pedro Branca dispute before the International Court of Justice. So this was very widely publicized in Singapore. I was watching, reading the news, really, and watching, uh, I guess, watching the ministers watch (laughs) the hearing. And I just thought this was such an interesting way of resolving disputes Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that didn't require, you know, going to war or anything like that. So I really wanted to study law because of my interest in public international law. And in law school, I continued to pursue that interest. I participated in uh, the Jessup Moot Court competition, which is the largest international law competition in the world. And at that competition, there was actually an issue to do with a bilateral investment treaty. Oh, nice. And so I was like, what is this BIT thing? What is this, (laughs) you know, (laughs) what is this treaty that allows private investors to bring claims directly against states as opposed to, you know, making, leaving it just to states to bring disputes against each other? And that's really what taught me about investor state arbitration, which is a type of international arbitration. And through that, you know, I I just decided to go into arbitration more generally. Okay, nice. And also building on that, then how have, you know, because you mentioned also that uh, in the early parts of your career, you participated or had experience in the International Court of Justice. How did that shape your experience or your perspectives toward how you handle international arbitration cases? I think it really gave me an appreciation of how differences in your culture, differences in your legal background mm-hmm. can affect the way you perceive the same issue. Yep. And one example is, you know, I, I had a, my, when I was at the International Court of Justice, my office mate was from a Latin American country. And I was reading a memorial, which is a submission uh, by, by a Latin American country. Mm-hmm. And I read it in English, of course. They submitted <laughs> it in Spanish with an English translation. So I read the English one and and I was feeling a little bit frustrated because I thought that the language they were using was was too flowery and and they were saying a lot of things and not citing the authorities for what they were saying. And in the meantime, for very trite principles of international law, that's when they cite authorities. And I was like, well, the the things I need authorities for are are like exactly the arguments you're making. And I was mentioning this to to my office mate and I, I decided to read out a portion of, you know, the the sentence that I had a particular issue with and he was like that sounds beautiful in Spanish (laughs) I was like okay okay so I see you know why they wrote things the way that they did from my perspective I could not understand but when when my colleague told me oh yeah you know I could see why they wrote it that way it it gave me an appreciation for how 
uh, again, like these cultural differences can can really affect the way you approach an issue. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing for international arbitration. Oftentimes it involves parties from different backgrounds. And to understand where they're coming from, you need to be mindful of really where they're coming from, what, what culture they're in, what, what legal system they're trained in. Yeah. And how do you keep yourself abreast of, you know, the different cultures, understanding um, cultures from different um, jurisdictions? And um, yeah, how do, you, how do you go about doing that? I think part of it is open-mindedness, okay. right? Not assuming that they think the same way that you do. Okay. okay. It helps also that in the field of international arbitration, people who are practicing in that field tend to come from all walks of, mm -hmm. of life. So I have a colleague who is also uh, a Spanish lawyer. Okay. And he and I have had many debates about <laughs> how to address a, a, a particular kind of legal argument. Yeah. And oftentimes the, the reason we might seem to disagree in the first instance mm -hmm. is because he's approaching it from a Spanish legal perspective and I'm yeah. approaching it from a common law, you know, New York, Singapore, right, New, right. In, in, you know, English law perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you can always also do research. Mm -hmm. You know, when I got my first Japanese client, I was researching Japanese etiquette. I was like, where should I sit? How should I bow? To yeah. who should I bow? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, it, it's so you could, yeah, you could always just learn about different cultures by, by researching them. Nice. And uh, which brings me very nicely to the next question around, um, we understand that you are effectively bilingual in both Mandarin Chinese as well as um, English. So how has you know, language really played a role in um, facilitating your um, approach towards handling cases, especially with individuals from different jurisdictions? I think language is important mm. uh, because if your client is Chinese, for example, they understand so much better when you're trying to explain concepts in Chinese yep. to them. Um, and besides the linguistic differences, um, China follows a civil law system as that's well. Right. Yep. So the concepts might sometimes not translate well, and that's the difficulty. I, I yep. think practicing in Hong Kong, which I did before I moved to Singapore, was mm. helpful in that context because uh, they actually have a court glossary translating. Right. <laughs> so they follow a common law system, but they use Cantonese. Yeah. So, you know, they, they do have translations of terms such as trust, which is a concept that doesn't exist in Chinese yeah, law. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, they have a Chinese translation. And I just use those Chinese terms then to, to explain to, you know, uh, our Chinese clients, yeah. who, you know, these, these concepts. Okay. Conversely, sometimes they use terms that I'm, I'm just like, well, you know, I understand where you're coming from. In other Chinese <laughs> law, you would have a slam dunk case. Yeah. But, you know, if, if it's under the governing New York law or some other law that's a common law system, your defenses don't apply in, yeah. in this context. Yeah. So we're going to have to go with something else. We're going to have to use a different <laughs> defense. Uh, but language is very important, I would mm -hmm. say, for something like international arbitration in yeah. particular, because you're always dealing with parties who can come from different uh, you know, backgrounds, different languages. Exactly. Let's look ahead uh, in terms of in the field of international arbitration. What do you see as some of the challenges or opportunities that might be facing um, lawyers like yourself and also the general field of international arbitration? Do you want to start with the good news or the bad? <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with the bad. <laughs> okay. I had to think about it, um, you know, and, and I think uh, from the perspective of someone trying to enter the field, mm -hmm. I think, um, or even from the perspective of clients, it can be difficult to 
identify the the right law firm or the right you know lawyers to approach for a case right now it, it's become a very kind of trendy topic um, it's become a lot more crowded the scene for international arbitration since since i uh, started practice mm -hmm. uh, and everyone claims to do it but um, when you you know given that i've been opposing counsel with a few different law firms yeah. there is really a difference between firms that have significant experience in international arbitration right, right. and firms that say they do it but they really do more domestic litigation or domestic arbitration exactly. because again they don't understand the international yes. context in which they're yes. operating and and that i really think affects you know the, the strategy affects their effectiveness mm -hmm. their persuasiveness before yeah. an international tribunal right right um so so that's really more from a career perspective <laughs> or you know a client perspective I think more generally kind of facing the, the arbitration community as a whole, uh, one challenge could be the fact that oftentimes our clients are mm -hmm. caught up in the crossfire of geopolitical conflicts right, right, that may right. exist, yeah. right? So one recent example actually is, is a Russian uh, claimant that's trying to enforce, uh, that's trying to bring an arbitration mm -hmm. uh, against uh, another company. Okay. And because you know, they're not, I, I think they're not directly named in the sanctions, but for some reason, there are some concerns about their um, status, right. you know, under, right. uh, um, based on US sanctions. And so they can't even make payment or rather they've made payment, but the payment hasn't reached the arbitral institution Yeah. because yeah. the arbitral institution is afraid of accepting payment in case right. they, they're found in violation of the sanctions. And, and so, you know, I mean, they're trying to bring a, they're trying to bring a claim. They're trying to enforce their rights. They can't mm. because technically the arbitral institution hasn't received payment, yeah. right? And and the same could be the case for you know uh, contracts, mm -hmm. right? Where where one party could basically say, well, we can't pay you because paying you or receiving money from you would put us in violation of U.S. sanctions laws. Right. And of course, there are ways to get around it, but there's still when I say ways, I mean you can apply for licenses. I'm not trying to say circumventing. <laughs> there are legal ways to yes, get around yes. it. But that takes time. And, and for the delay, for the period of delay where you're not supplying goods, where you're not receiving payment, yeah. well, who bears the risk of that, right? And that's a really tricky issue because it's not always kind of covered in a contract. Or yeah. even if it is, it, sometimes it just means, well, you lose money, mm -hmm, right? Because mm -hmm. the government stepped in here. Okay. So that's the bad news. <laughs> What's the good news then? I think the good news is as long as there's globalization and, you know, kind of despite what you see about more countries becoming more protectionist and yeah. the way they run the industries, I think globalization is, uh, you know, it's not going to even decrease. Maybe mm -hmm. it might not increase at the pace that it, it might not grow at the pace that it has. Yeah. But um, as long as there's globalization, as long as there's trans, you know, like international transactions, mm -hmm there will always be a place for international arbitration. Right. I really think it, you know, that's the preferred mode of dispute resolution that's okay. binding yep. as opposed to mediation, um, that domestic litigation just can't uh, right. cover. And I, I think earlier you also mentioned a point about, um, you know, different firms having different approaches towards international arbitration. And I thought it was quite interesting. Uh, maybe we would love to hear, you know, from prospective clients, how do they go about picking you know a firm that might really be an expert in international arbitration oftentimes clients with absolutely kind of no exposure or experience of international arbitration would look at listings okay. like ranking guides and everything yeah. which i think could be helpful but mm -hmm. they don't necessarily tell the full story Correct. because Correct. 
honestly, when you go with, you know, when you decide to engage a lawyer, you're not really engaging the whole firm. Correct. correct. Sometimes you could for the benefits that the size of the firm provides, yeah. but you're really engaging a team, mm-hmm. right? A particular lawyer or set group of lawyers and, and their team. So for that, I think clients really just need to do their due diligence. Okay. They need to talk to lawyers, yep. understand, well, what would you recommend in this situation? Mm-hmm. And based on you know whatever preliminary advice yep. the lawyers are willing to give, it could really kind of, um, that could really be a way for the lawyers to showcase um, not just their legal prowess, yeah. which should be a given, yeah. but also kind of the way they approach an issue, kind of the strategic thinking. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and as we move on to, you know, um, talking about the field of international arbitration and dispute resolution, um, as you have alluded to, sometimes these cases can get pretty complex. Um, and also, based on what you have shared, it seems that you have a very good grasp of working together with your clients. Um, so we'd love to learn a bit more about what's your personal philosophy in terms of working together with them? Um, how do you typically like to approach more complex issues that might arise in uh, the field of international arbitration? I think first and foremost, I always try to figure out what they want. Okay. <laughs> what okay. is it that you want to achieve? Yeah, that's important. <laughs> um, because uh, one complaint I've heard from clients, not about me, thankfully, but about, <laughs> about other lawyers, honestly, even when yeah. I was growing up, right, yeah. from, from my relatives who work with lawyers, mm-hmm. is that oftentimes uh, they would say, well, this is what I want to do from right. a business perspective. And the lawyers would go, well, that whatever way you're proposed to do it doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work under the law. And, and they don't propose solutions. They don't yeah. go, well, but we know you're trying to achieve this. And be, you know, even though the way that you think we want to do it doesn't work, right. here's potentially some other ways we can structure the deal mm-hmm. so that we can achieve what you want. Yeah. Most lawyers don't go to the second stage. They just kind of think within the limits of what the client has told right. them and say, right. well, right. sorry, right. we can't help you, yeah. right? They think within the confines of the contract and they go, well, we can't help you. So what I try to do is again like try to understand well what do you want to achieve Mm -hmm. and then maybe here's how we can help you achieve it using legal tools but sometimes it's you know legal tools alone are not enough so we work with consultancies like PR firms Mm -hmm. we work with investigation firms you know because these provide complementary services that could kind of help the client achieve its uh, commercial goals as well and then when things get complex you know, and, and this happened recently as well for, for me. You sometimes have to tell the client there's no perfect solution, yeah. right? Here are the various options available to you. Here are the implications for each of these options, the mm-hmm. risks, the benefits. And here's what we would recommend based on what you have yeah. kind of said you want to do, yeah. right? So the choice is theirs. We have given them a recommendation, so it's not like we, we are not taking a position, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> but... Um, we're also kind of explaining to them that there's no perfect solution to this. There's a risk to each and every one of them, but we have assessed the risks and we think this is the one that's the best way forward. Yeah, I think think that's really a very sound approach. I mean, a lot of times we always want to be um, representing our clients appropriately, but also at the same time, um, thinking in their shoes so that we can give the best advice for, um, to get a successful outcome for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And sometimes it's not it's not, it's not natural. Yeah. Right? Like there was a case recently where the client really just wanted to go nuclear. I mean, they were using <laughs> terms that were very reminiscent of like war terms, right? Cuz 
and, and, and it wasn't because they necessarily wanted to win in the arbitration. Right, it's actually right. a restructuring with, with some related arbitration. Uh -huh. So we were working with our restructuring team uh, for, for this case. Yeah. And they really wanted us to go nuclear on the arbitration because mm -hmm. they wanted to put pressure on the other side to essentially do, you know, do something in relation to the restructuring. Yeah. Yeah. So there yeah. was a broader goal, yeah. right? Even yeah. though... Yeah. It, it, for me, it felt very unnatural to be like be, being as aggressive as I was yeah. in the arbitration uh, with the case that we had. <laughs> I was like, okay, I see where you're coming from. You yeah. understand the risk. You understand yeah. that we could, you know, lose the case. You understand that we could get costs, whatever. Mm -hmm. They understand the risk. They want to yeah. go ahead. So we went ahead. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's very interesting because sometimes people might only see one small part of it, but oftentimes you need to really understand what is, how do we fit into the bigger picture with our clients? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, which brings me to the last question. Um, as we, you know, as we think about the next generation of lawyers or younger lawyers who are entering into the field of considering an op career option in international arbitration, um, what advice do you have for them? Uh, I would say if you are interested in international arbitration and dispute resolution, then you should make your interests clear. Okay. Right. You can make that clear through the causes that you choose to take in law school, mm -hmm. through the moot courts the competitions, whatever it is, there's so yeah. many opportunities for you to kind of showcase your interest. Okay. And in interviews, um, you, you know, you have to be able to articulate why you're interested in something. You yeah. can't just go, well, I'm interested because everyone loves it. It's, <laughs> it's like the hot thing right now. Yeah. Um, because that doesn't tell me why you in particular would be a good fit <laughs> for international arbitration. Yeah. So they would really kind of have to think, well, why am I interested in this and mm -hmm. how can I pursue it? I, I may come across as a bit idealistic in saying this, but I think there's some value in doing what you're what you like and yes. pursuing what you're interested in rather than being driven just by what is currently the popular thing. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, you know, if you want a long career in the law, uh, you have to like what you do. Yes. <laughs> like yes, yes. There's nothing that quite justifies, you know, the, the hours that you put in, the stress and everything yeah. if you don't like it. Correct. And I can tell you there are times when I'll be working crazy late at night. And I still like what I'm doing because I, I do. I, I mean, I, I like this free resolution because, you know, I like I like winning. <laughs> but um, but you have to know why you like it. You have yeah. to you have to find something that drives you beyond. It's the next big thing or it's the current big thing and the pay is good or whatever. Yeah, I think I think it, it is very evident. I can see the spark in your eyes. And also from I mean, I mean, from your description of how um, it started from back when you, you know, you, you watched um, you saw it in the news and then um, pursued that both in your education path and academic career and then to your career. Um, I think it's very evident to see how your passion is driving to and um, yeah, super inspirational. Thanks so much for sharing. I think this wraps up the English segment of today's podcast. I will now move on to the Chinese rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. 那我们现在进行快问快答的环节 也是符合国际商会和新加坡国际仲裁中心仲裁规则的仲裁员。那就是能够跟我们观众提一下，就是你。Uh, 
呃每天日常的工作中所做的些什么吗？呃，日常工作就是呃，我就会聆听，就是各种客户的呃电话和会议内容，尽力了解他们的商业目标。嗯。呃，然后就如何从法律的角度呃，最好的实现这些目标。OK， 好的。那呃，对于年轻律师来说，您会介绍呃哪一本书给他们阅读呢？呃，我的答案可能就比较适合诉讼律师吧，<笑> okay. 因为我也是诉讼律师。呃，我我会建议年轻律师阅读呃，就是 Philip Meyer <笑> The Storytelling for Lawyers 这本书， okay. 因为我觉得他这本书强调了就叙事和呃在仲裁中的呃核心作用。嗯<笑>。呃，而很多今呃现在很多年轻的律师呃可能也没有呃意识到这一点。对对对。对那身为一名知名的仲裁员，呃，你认为就是是，你认为要当一名仲裁员需要具备哪一些特质呢？觉得仲裁员呃必须保持独立性，一定要独立性、中立性，呃，然后我觉得他们也应该有一个开放的心态 ，OK， 和谦虚的态度。Okay. 嗯，为什么呢？因为他们可能就认呃，如果他们自以为呃很聪明，就可能以为觉得呃这如果有呃读读了双方呃的呃呃的申请书啦、答辩书，对，啊、呃、可能就会呃认为这是他这是他们应该呃呃呃写下的这个判决。可是如果他们没有呃就是有这个开放的心态，听双方呃怎么讲的的观点，对。他们就可能啊、嗯，不会呃，把一个他们可能就不能够写出真的一个是好的呃、嗯、仲裁判决。OK OK， 那最后一道问题，我们做一个比较有趣的问题吧。No. <笑>如果你能与呃任何一个历史人物共进晚餐的话，你会选择谁呢？我我会选择跟耶稣共进晚餐。哦，无论人们认为他是弥赛亚，还是他们他只是一个呃，就是历史人物。是是。嗯，他无疑是对呃人类历史呃有影响最大的人之一。所以我觉得跟他跟他一起吃晚饭应该会很有趣吧，应该充满智慧。你会选择？怎么样的一个晚餐呢？他要吃什么，我就带他吃吧。<笑><笑>好的，好的。那呃，就今天的那个播客就到此为止。那非常感谢 Jennifer 百忙之中抽空和我们呃分享她对于国际仲裁的经验。And thank you so much, Jennifer, for spending your time today to share with us your experience and perspectives in relation to international arbitration.、Um, I personally learned a lot and also very inspired by your passion and fire to、um, push forth the international. National arbitration field, and really excited to see、uh, more successful cases coming from you in the near future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Business Beyond Borders. If you have any feedback or thoughts, do write into us at support at bluen dot com. Click to follow to tune into the next episode. See you again soon.